Okay, Jesus is teaching on divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19. Uh, this is debated. This is a very hotly debated one. It's mostly between Catholics and Protestants because Protestants, um, I think they interpreted this in a way that's just impossible to interpret. <laughs> uh, hopefully it'll become clear. But um, it's it's a very important uh, passage in Matthew 19 about, you know, are, are we allowed to divorce, basically. But there's more to the story. There's some context here that people often miss about this story. And so it's not as clear um, when they interpret it. So let's just go right to the text. Enough introduction. Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he cured them there. Some Pharisees came to him and to test him, they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? Jesus said to them, it was because you were so hard hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Okay, few notes right off the bat. Where is he exactly? Okay, he left Galilee in verse one and went to the region of Judah beyond the Jordan. Okay, (laughs) where have we seen this before? This is a part that a lot of people miss. Uh, we saw this before in Matthew 14, where uh, where was John? John was working in Judea beyond the Jordan, where Herod would have had his kingdom and where he uh, would rule. Uh, and so John the Baptist preaches in Judea beyond the Jordan. And uh, what happens to him? Well, in Matthew 14, we have the story of the death of John the Baptist. So Herod arrested John, bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. Okay, so Herod the Great is the king of the Jews at the time. He's not a Jew himself. He's actually an Edomite. Um, But uh, so what Herod had done, uh, he really liked. So Philip's wife was named Herodias and he made his brother divorce his wife so that Herod could marry Herodias. (laughs) And so John the Baptist Uh, preached against Herod saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put John the Baptist to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. Okay, so the scenario is set. Herod's the king. He makes his brother's wife get divorced so he can marry her. And then John basically tells him like, hey, dude, that's not lawful. That's wrong. You're the king of the Jews. And you like for no reason, except for you just wanted her pulled a (laughs) a Henry the, the eighth. Um, Anyways, so though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so much, he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. 
So yeah, Herod is having a great time. She must have performed like the best dance ever. And in Luke's gospel, we hear that Herod had promised even half of his kingdom. Prompted by her mother, Herodias, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Okay, so Herodias, Herodias the wife, probably was not very flattered with uh, John the Baptist preaching against her and saying it's not lawful for you to do that. And so when the king, Herod, makes some grand oath to Herodias' daughter, the daughter says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. I mean, this would have been traumatic. I mean, John the Baptist, I mean, from the Annunciation um, and Mary and Elizabeth, you know, John, his cousin, his very, you know, his very close kinsman and the one who preached his coming died by basically by a dance and preaching the law against against the powerful Herod and Herodias. And where was he doing this? In Judea beyond the Jordan River, which would have been Herod's area. Okay, now let's go back to Matthew 19. Where is Jesus in Matthew 19? He left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Okay, so what's the question that the Pharisees come and ask Jesus? Oh, they ask about divorce. Okay, well, once again, Matthew 14, we've already heard about divorce with Herod and with Herodias. And what happened to John the Baptist when he preached against Herod and Herodias regarding divorce? Well, his head ended up on a platter. Okay, so the Pharisees came to him and test him. Now, wait a second. If they're asking a question and it has no context, it's just a question, how is that a testing? What's the test here? So a lot of people miss this in their interpretations because they think so the context is Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and then basically says, you can do this, right? Um, you can do divorce and remarriage according to Deuteronomy 24. But there was a debate, I mean, because it's kind of ambiguous. So if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds some indecency in her. So there was a debate in the first century and previously to that. What exactly constitutes some displeasing thing? Like, does it mean, you know, like this is, I'm stealing directly from Dr. Han here, but, you know, if if she makes you a bad breakfast, can you divorce her and get another wife for, for dinner and lunch, you know? Uh, is it any indecency? Like she she <laughs> doesn't make good enough coffee? Or if you take a very maximalist view, it's only in cases of adultery. Uh, so some indecency in her means if she commits adultery, then obviously you can divorce and actually remarry. And so that's the question is, how do you interpret indecency? And there's actually the... Um, Scholarship has found that there's two camps, um, Hillel and Shammai, um, and I can't remember which one's the the liberal and which one's the conservative version, you could say. So the Pharisees do have a kind of intramural debate regarding interpreting divorcing your wife for any cause. 
Um, but they don't ask, they don't, uh, sorry, divorcing your wife for some indecency, but they don't actually ask Jesus, hey, you know, what's, what's your opinion about indecency? They come up to him and test him and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Any cause at all? Now, let's think. Why would that be a testing? Uh, so who's divorced his wife for any cause? Oh, wait a second. Herod. <laughs> if you remember before, obviously, Herod made Herodias divorce Philip just because he was like, I want you to be my wife. So that's definitely any cause. What's the one way they could word this question to make it apply to Herod? Oh, well, this is the way. It's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. If Jesus just flatly says, of course not, you idiots, just read Deuteronomy 24, then what they're going to do is go to run to Herod and hopefully get Jesus to end up in the same scenario as John the Baptist with his head on a silver platter. So that's their purpose. And I don't think this is too much of a stretch. I mean, Matthew gives us a few clues. Obviously, they come to test him. He's in the region where where Herod would have been, and they ask him an absolutely absurd question that would only apply to Herod. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? So Jesus sees through their trap. In verse 4, he says, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So, I mean, this would be a total slap in the face. I mean, that's Genesis. That's literally Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, <laughs> so telling these people who are experts of the law, have you not read Genesis would have been just hilarious, right? Have you not read Genesis, male and female? And for this reason, they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And they receive the implication like, oh my goodness, wait, you're saying there's like a new metaphysical reality made in marriage. Okay, well, then they said to him, why then did Moses command us to give him a certificate of dismissal and to, to divorce her? So remember, this is in Deuteronomy 24. It's an allowance to divorce. He said to them, it was because you were hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Okay, now this gets you into some interpretations regarding law. So if you remember the context, maybe you don't, but we can introduce it here. What is the word, what is the book of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy comes from the Greek, which means deuteros nomos. Nomos means law and deutero means second. So Deuteronomy already is second law. What was the first law? Well, it was the law given at Sinai, uh, the Ten Commandments, right? And in the... In the um, the Sinai covenant when they come out of the land of Egypt. But what happens? Immediately when they come out of Egypt, they start worshiping the golden calf. And you have uh, this great apostasy, basically, of, of Israel. And so what happens is uh, they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years and, and being this uh, wicked generation. And they don't get to enter the promised land until after those 40 years, after that generation who committed the uh, worshiping of the golden calf until they die and the new generation is able to go into the promised land. Okay, so Deuteronomy is given after the first law, and so it's the second law, and there's much more allowances. Okay, and one of these allowances is divorce and remarriage. Now, why would you allow for divorce and remarriage via a certificate of divorce? Well, it definitely is an evil. It's an evil that divorce and remarriage would exist. And, and Christ very simply points this, points this out in he who made them in the beginning made them male and female. And the metaphysical reality that comes about 
when the two become one flesh, yet they're no longer two, but one. And so divorce is a kind of metaphysical impossibility when God has joined them together. And so why did Moses allow them a certificate of dismissal? It's because you were hard-hearted. Okay. As a, a good lawgiver, Moses realized there could be a greater evil that could occur if he didn't allow for some system of divorce and remarriage. You know, if there was no legal means of divorce, except for death do us part, then someone, you know, the Israelites have already proven that they were um, unable to keep the law in the case of the golden calf. So the possibility of wife murder would be the reason, one of the reasons for this allowance of divorce and remarriage that the idea is like, well, if your wife is super displeasing and if you're, you know, wanting for another and you're, uh, and the law gives you no allowance for that, well, you know, there's a possibility that the Israelites, you could have cases where the wife actually gets murdered. And so as a just lawgiver, realizing how perverse the Israelite people were at the time, um, Moses allows for this. But in the New Testament, Jesus overcomes this. He said, it was because you were hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And then we have a very uh, powerful saying. Lego de Hamin, I say unto you. So now you have Moses taught these things, but now Jesus is now giving his new law and saying, Lego, I, I say, Lego de Hamin, I say now unto you that whoever shall divorce his wife may epipornea, which is except for immorality and shall marry another, commits adultery. And he who marries her commits adultery, marries another, commits adultery. Okay. So now Jesus is giving the new law regarding divorce and remarriage. Whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. Okay. Now a few people, you know, uh, okay. How do we interpret this? Um, so he says, except for unchastity. Well, what does that mean? I mean, is, is he basically repeating what Deuteronomy 24 says, which is, oh, if you find some indecency, you can divorce her. Uh, no. And, and remarry. You know, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. Is the is the and here? Um, you know, is the and the except for unchastity clause? People make a lot out of this, um, and basically think what it means is if you divorce your wife and marry another, uh, you commit adultery unless you know she's an adulteress, for example. Um, and so what they're allowing is basically, uh, in the cases of adultery, you're allowed to divorce your wife and to marry another. And basically you can do whatever you want with that. But notice that the except for unchastity clause comes in the beginning, in, in the middle of the sentence. So the traditional view on this is that you can divorce your wife. Um, and actually you probably should if she's unrepentant regarding adultery. And this goes for men as well. If you're if the man is being in an adulterous relationship and is unfaithful to the marriage, then divorce is actually necessary. That you should not be, um, you should not be with that person. But it's not divorce and remarriage, because if you marry another after being married once, then you commit adultery. 
And this is understandable in verse 10 when his disciples say to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it is better to not marry. So they understood what Christ is saying. What Christ is saying is in the new law, once you're married and you're metaphysically united to each other, there's no ability for you to divorce and remarry because it's a metaphysical imp- uh, impossibility. And the disciples realize this and they're like, oh my goodness, you you're only allowed one wife. You can't divorce at all. There's no ability. If such is the case with a man with his wife, it is better to not to marry. Like that's really harsh, Jesus. You know, that's for your whole life, that whole thing. And, but he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of kingdom. Let he who can accept this, accept this. So Jesus doubles down. He doesn't say, well, you guys misunderstood me. I mean, you know, uh, it's not that harsh. No, he says, not everyone can accept this teaching. Well, what teaching here? Uh, It's better not to marry. So eunuchs, eunuchs are those who... Um, would their specific servants who would guard kings, the king's uh, harem, basically. So the king would have number of wives and also concubines, and there'd be uh, specific servants who were castrated and were allowed to basically watch over the wives and take care of them and, and watch over the concubines in the kingdom. So he names a number of these eunuchs. There's three groups. And only two of them are actually like known to the ancient world. The third one is very strange. So there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. So men who have some defect. So they're not going to marry. And so they're eunuchs. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. So they were castrated by others. And so now they're you know no longer able to um, <laughs> get married and have children. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Okay, now who are these eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of kingdom? Um, so the early church father Origen took this very literally and very seriously and castrated himself to uh, basically make sure he's a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. That's obviously wrong and condemned by the church to do that, but this is the institution of consecrated virginity, both male and female, um, in order to greater serve uh, the church, and specifically with a celibate priesthood, and then also with religious life, that there are those people who um, sacrifice the good of marriage in order to follow Christ more perfectly and to serve the church in a more serious role um, and an institutionalized role. And so, let anyone accept this who can. Now, he's not rejecting marriage. So, in verse thirteen onwards, we have the little children being brought to him in order that he may lay their hands on them. And the disciples spoke sternly to those who brought him, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So here you may be tempted to think, okay, wow, that is very, that's, that's very crazy. The fact that Christ is not allowing any circumstance of divorce and remarriage. Uh, he's only allowing for divorce in the case of adultery. The disciples saying, you know, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And him introducing this concept of the eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. But in order for us not to think that like marriage is somehow reduced in the New Testament, is reduced in the church and the new covenant, he blesses the little children. And then we have the parable of the rich young man. And it's a fantastic parable. I don't think I'll go into it now. Um, you know, the young man went away 
grieving. He's young and he's rich. So, I mean, you know, I think all, oh man, I want to do a video, uh, an essay on this, but yeah, the fact that he's young and rich, I think a lot of Christians are tempted today to think the best good they can do for the church is be young and rich. And, oh, think of the great things I can do with all this wealth. You know, I can evangelize on Instagram. Anyways, that's uh, a topic for another time. But um, what Jesus asked him to do is to be perfect and to sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Peter said in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I, t- I tell to you at the renewal of all things, the regeneration. When the son of man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So this is a very powerful chapter. First, we have this, um, the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus into condemning Herod's um, (laughs) marriage, but it gets flipped on them. And Christ asserts the metaphysical um, reality that comes out of marriage, that the two become one flesh. We have the rejection of divorce and remarriage, this very um, solid, permanent idea of marriage that um, the disciples understand. They say, if such is the case with the man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Then we have this introduction of this, this, uh, this other way of being in Christ and in the new covenant, which is eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. But he makes sure to understand that he blesses marriage, that marriage and the little children are great and good and are a blessing for to such belong the little uh, for such belong the kingdom of heaven. And finally, we have the par- the uh, rich young man coming to Christ and Christ saying, if you give up your possessions and follow me, you will have treasure in heaven. And he goes away grieving because he has many possessions. Um, there's so much to make about this. I'm probably going to do another video, uh, another essay on wealth in the New Testament, especially in Matthew. And Peter's saying, we've left everything and Christ makes the promise to receive a hundredfold, hundredfold. So this isn't a hundred percent on return on investment. This is, you know, a hundred times your investment. You know, you've left all these things for my sake and I will reward you greatly. So this is a bit of a, an, an extended one, but a hopefully a, um, an interesting one regarding divorce and remarriage, how the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus to get him in the same fate as Herod, the eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, which is completely new in world history, basically, the blessing of the little children, and finally, that Christ will reward a hundredfold those who leave everything and come and follow him.